Hello, here's Christian. I'm heading the company building unit Forward 31 of Porsche Digital. And I'm very delighted to be here in the room together with Tim Leberecht. He's the co-CEO, co-founder and co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business. And together we are pretty happy to present a new episode of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast season two. So Tim, we're in Berlin. Where are we exactly? And who are the beautiful minds we're having in this episode? We are in a house of beautiful business, so to speak. We are at Tucholsky Palace, our home. Only we call it Tucholsky Palace, so don't Google it. And uh, we're sitting in a lounge here and we're about to listen to a conversation between Carola Rakete and Giampiero Petlieri about leadership. Carola is an activist, an ecologist, and a ship captain who works for the sea rescue organization Sea-Watch. And Giampiero Petlieri is a professor of organizational behavior and also a trained psychiatrist. And he teaches and lectures and conducts research at the business school in Seat. And the two are meeting online remotely to have a conversation about leadership. How is leadership changing in the wake of this crisis? What does it mean to be a good and effective leader? And do we even still need leaders? Very intriguing. I hope for a little bit of polarizing energy with these two. Let's see and tune into the episode. Carola, hi. So let me just by saying, like many people, I guess the first time I heard about you was in the summer of 2019, in um, June 19, when you became the protagonist of an episode that provokes a lot of controversy in Europe and in Italy in particular, which is my home country. Um, and just to remind the listeners, you're the captain of the Sea Watch 3, the ship of a Dutch NGO. You rescued 53 people off the coast of Libya, engaged in a two-week standoff with the Italian government that at the time had closed its harbors, refused to authorize your docking in Lampedusa, which is a small island off the southern coast of Sicily, and the closest safe port to you. Eventually, you declared the situation on board was deteriorating and forced the block docking in Lampedusa and getting arrested, an arrest that I should add, the Italian courts later declared unlawful because you'd acted according to maritime law. And the episode struck many chords for me personally and professionally. Uh, I am Sicilian, although I've lived and worked across Europe for the last 20 years. I'm based in France. I identify as a European, I'm a scholar of leadership and mobility. And so I've been looking forward to these conversations for many reasons. Now, many of our listeners will remember that episode. And, and of course, it's easy to dwell on those dramatic moments of leadership, like the courage, the choice, the consequence. And, and yet those moments are often snapshots of a, of a larger story, right? The story of Carola Raquette's life and work. And that's the story that I'm sure has deeper roots, bigger dreams, and that I, I'd really love to hear about. So maybe we can start. One thing I'm curious about is the moments of leadership when the lights, the spotlight goes off. I want to take you back to the days immediately after that midnight docking. I understand that you're placed in house arrest in Lampedusa, in a house with no access to the media firestorm that ensued around La Capitana, which is as you came to be known. What were you thinking? What was in your mind at that moment in those days? Well, first of all, it's really nice to meet you here online. And I'm quite excited about this conversation. Well, while I was in Lampedusa in the house arrest, it was a strange situation because all the time we were working in a team 
of these 22 people on board. So the stress from the outside is quite high and you really have to cooperate well together. And suddenly during the arrest, I was taken out of the team. Uh, in this situation, maybe it's important to, to add that while the captain is, of course, in command of the whole ship, we do have somebody called a head of mission. So it's basically a bit like a double lead. So when I was gone, it wasn't that the crew was completely left without any leadership, but there was a very, very strong, strange feeling of abandoning or having to abandon my my team and wondering what was going on on the ship, how they were all being, uh, how they were dealing with things, what was happening with the rest of my team. So that was actually really something which concerned me quite a lot after I was um, placed in house arrest. And then, of course, the meetings with the lawyers and trying to understand how things would develop. But of course, I have to say that while the situation was maybe a surprise for many people across Europe, it was actually clear that we would get into that situation as an organization and for me personally as well. So I did have quite a lot of preparation. I did expect that we would have legal proceedings after this mission. Because criminalization against sea rescue was going on since at least two years before that. I have friends who have legal cases and I was in a way prepared for the legal implications. I was, however, not really prepared for the media response to that situation. That was something I was quite surprised about. And I think it was good for me that in the moment, initially after the arrest, I was sheltered from uh, receiving all this news and all the coverage and seeing what people were saying across Europe. And did you have a sense that this was um, a moment for which maybe there will be a before and after for you, that this was a moment in which your leadership was really crystallizing? Initially, I didn't see that it would have such large implications for my own life. Now it feels a bit like there is a before and after the arrest because before I was a private person, now I'm a public person, for example. You did become a symbol. I think this particular moment, it became a story of its own, which isn't that much connected to me as an actual person, because it focuses on a very small part of who I am as a person. But what I see, what is good in that, and I think why society probably needs these types of stories, is... I think overall, people are really looking for stories of humanity and kindness. You now, we have a lot of discussions about people all being only driven by economic interest, everyone just looking out for themselves. They're always being competition and these things. And at the same time, society only works and humans have only evolved because of mutual aid, because we're actually very, very good at cooperating. And then I think if there's a story like that, where somebody actually does something um, kind and helpful, taking care of other people, it resonates actually with people. I think it resonates. And those are the, the kind of stories which remind the wider society that not everyone is only looking for their own benefit. You said you had preparation for some parts and not others. How did you prepare? i seen in some interviews that you've said that you actually stepped on the boat at the last minute because someone else stepped down, but you had thought about this a great deal. 
And, uh, you know, and although, of course, you know, as you say, in those stories, we see the moment of kindness, we see the leader doing what's right, we are often cast them as heroic moments. I'm sure you weren't alone, that that moment was grounded in some roots. What made it possible for you to hold on to that humanity, to that kindness? I think it's a very interesting theme in leadership because, you know, often a lot of what we see is people that under threat, under pressure, actually do the opposite. They know the right thing, but they cower or they, you know, become unkind, isolated. And in some way, your story, as you say, was a reminder that that doesn't have to be the case. But how does one prepare for remaining human under very significant threat? I think we are all formed by the situations we have lived through, our socialization and education and our past experiences. So, for example, I had been volunteering in the Mediterranean Sea for about one or two months every year since 2016. 2016, I was on board the Sea Watch 2 for the first time as a captain as well, because someone had just stepped down. And I became a witness to several shipwrecks, like several times where we were just too late. And that was in a time where we were still cooperating very much with the Italian Coast Guard, who's doing a fantastic job at rescuing people and many times has actually said that they would like to go out and rescue again. However, they're forbidden to do so. And as well with the Italian military. And we have seen people who have died just a few hours before because we were too late. And we see a lot of young people in particular. And that gives you an understanding that all of us, or people like me, let's say, who come to live to the age of 30 without any real trouble for the safety of their lives, are incredibly privileged and lucky. Because I've seen people that who are half my age. And it's just for the bad luck that they're born in an unsafe place. And when you realize that type of privilege, then... I think you feel the moral responsibility to share something or to give something back. And then in 2017, when the criminalization of sea rescue started, and as said, the first ship, Juventa, was arrested, and some, some of my friends also have criminal investigations against them, I really started to think, like, if that goes on and gets worse, where's the line? For example, thinking, if you would rescue 100 people, would that be worse going to jail for 20 years in the worst case? Or if you just rescue 50 people, or if you rescue 10 people, where's the line? And then you actually come to think that in the end, you go to an Italian jail if you have to go at all, which is a fairly safe place. And if you compare that to all these people, to their lives, how they grew up, in which places, how they have lived, when they pass through Libya, nearly all of them are subjected to very extreme human rights abuses. So have constant cases of kidnapping, people being tortured to extract ransom from their families, uh, forced labor, slavery, sexual abuse, all of these things. Nearly all the people experience that. And if you say, I can rescue a few people from those conditions, and in the worst case, I will go to jail for a few years, then I really think it's worth it. And I had a lot of time to think about that. So it wasn't a decision if I have taken within a few minutes or in a few days. Since 2017, we knew that the criminalization was getting worse. And I think in their own terms, each and every person who stepped on a ship as a captain has been thinking about the potential consequences and about criminalization and arrest. What's the journey that 
took you on these ships. How did you get to do this? What what were you doing before? I graduated from Maritime College in 2011. And I straight away started to work for the German Polar Research Institute. I went to the North Pole on my very first voyage as a duck officer. That's nine years ago. And I was, and I'm still very interested in polar ecosystems. They're extremely beautiful and so fragile. You see the climate breakdown just by being there. You see the ice melting in the Arctic. You have the incredible impetus to climate research scientists. And they tell you that reporting on the data isn't enough because they've been doing that for 30 years. What's lacking is the political action. And that's when I became a bit more interested in how that political action could happen. And I worked for Greenpeace for a while. But then I also studied to become an ecologist. So I now hold a master's degree in protected area management. And it was in 2015 when a friend from Greenpeace actually told me about the sea rescue vessels in the Mediterranean. And interestingly, quite a lot of people from environmental NGOs, such as Greenpeace or Sea Shepherd as well, have ended up volunteering in the Mediterranean Sea. There's a quite strong connection between people being engaged in both these topics. I mean, I know you've, uh, and I want to get back to that because I know you have a view on the connection between the economic crisis, the environmental crisis, and social injustice. And what's the, what makes people move from one crisis to, to the other, which is in some ways more immediate? You know, it's a matter of minutes if you arrive or not, as opposed to one that at least appears to be slower moving. I think in 2015, 2016, um, the immediate need for rescue teams mm -hmm. was very urgent and visible. And I think that's why many people went there. And because, of course, when you rescue people from these unsafe rubber boats, you, of course, see directly the result of your action, which is something which we do not often have the privilege to see in most of our other work, because it's often very long-term, or the results which we see are quite small. So in a way, seeing the sea rescue and having a visible result of your work is something which many of the volunteers in the sea rescue really, really enjoy doing. And I think that is something which is often lacking in many other jobs where people, I think to some degree, often cannot see the purpose of what they're actually doing. Because I think the motivation which people have is incredibly important for, for the outcome of their work. But if you don't believe that your job is really important, if you don't really believe that, for example, selling mobile phones or producing better cars really improves things in the society, then it's hard to find motivation. But of course, if you rescue people from a sinking boat mm. and you see their gratitude and you see their happiness and you see the difference between a dead person and a living person, yes. then... Of course, it's really, really easy to find the motivation for doing that. And and in a way, I actually think it's not even that you don't you don't believe your purpose, but in those kind of situations, you can touch it. You see it; it's visible. The impact of your work, as opposed to having to believe it or to imagine it in you know five years, ten years, fifteen years, it's a moment. You know, you're in in a place, and your impact is happening 
there, which is interesting because um, I was going to go the direction of what are the roots of courage, right? You know, what people and what stories and what you're saying is, well, the possibility of making a difference in the moment is what somehow allows that step, that courage to step into that uncertainty, to take that risk, the risk to stay kind when the, when the cost could be, could be high. I'll tell you what my story um, how my story kind of intersected with with that story. What struck me when um, I was watching that unfold was was the changing meaning of boundaries in Europe. And um, you know, I'm of a generation that came of age with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was a teenager, and I grew up in Sicily. And you know, it was felt for my generation felt like a moment where freedom had triumphed and all boundaries were evil. And in fact, you know, the, the possibility of moving out, of crossing boundaries was the ultimate aspiration, it was the promise of Europe. And in middle age, I find myself struggling with what happened. How did my generation fail to uphold the ideals that people like me benefited from so that you found yourself facing a wall when there was none? And, um, you know, and ever since I saw that, what, what struck me was the symbolism of you on that ship at the borders of the EU. Here you have a mobile leader in charge in some way. You know, you're a product of the European ideal. You're educated, you're mobile. As you say, you have the kind of privileges I've also benefited from. You worked in the polls and then suddenly you're volunteering in the Mediterranean. And then you have dozens of displaced people, which are also a product of European history and of European policies. And so symbolically, what you have on the ship is two sides of the same coin, mobility and displacement, European opportunity and European cruelty. And, and what you did then became a crisis of consciousness, I think, for people. Do we embrace the mobile? Do we embrace the displaced we have created? Or do we reject them? And in many ways, your presence, I think, at least to me, was a reminder of the EU history and, and your choices was a critique of the present. And you've been very forceful in critiquing EU policy. I've seen some of your interviews. Do you still remain critical of um, where the EU is in the face of its responsibility and its actions towards the refugee crisis and uh, maybe broader economic and environmental issues? The Geneva Convention on Refugee Rights was drafted and signed after the Second World War. So after a period of historical cruelty and many human rights abuses carried out, of course, first and foremost by the Nazis in, in Germany. And that afterwards was a time period for larger cooperation on an international level in a certain sense, and guaranteeing the rights of refugees. But despite the fact that all these nations have signed these conventions and laws, they're not adhering to them anymore. So I feel that we are not even asking for something very progressive, other than for just the European Union to stick to the laws which they have signed. And I find that in a way even quite sad. You could say that about people um, on the border of Europe who are saying, let's just stick to the convention and the laws which we have signed. Let's just do the things which we agreed we would be doing. 
or we look at the young activists from Fridays for Future and they say, let's just stick to the Paris Agreement. Let's just stick to the laws. And that is kind of the bare minimum of what people are asking for. That's the point of history where we are. We're not asking for even progressive or really radical things, which I think we should be asking for. So one of those examples, why are we in that predicament of environmental breakdown? Why is there this huge inequality in economic income in possibilities around the globe? And to me, it really lies in the fact that we have allowed ourselves to become disconnected from nature, to see ourselves outside of the natural system, saying that we as humans are superior to the rest of the biosphere, we can exploit everything, we can use up all the resources, and we will survive and we'll be fine. And now it all comes back to us. We're losing biodiversity at an astonishing rate. The climate is spiraling out of control. Soil is being depleted. The water is dirty. The seas are overfished and all of that. So we have allowed ourselves to exploit nature and we've also allowed that people of other groups are seen as inferior and also being exploited, of course, in the colonial times, but even until this date. We would never have waited two weeks outside an Italian port if we had rescued white people from a cruise ship. I'm really sure of that. We would have never waited two weeks had we rescued people from a private sailing yacht. I have, of course, no proof, but I'm pretty sure of it. And I think what we need to change and what we really need to ask for is that we see the value not only in all human beings, but in all life. So the same way that corporations have personhood rights, the way that a ship can have person rights legally, nature needs to have legal rights. You know, in the past, we have fought for the rights of women. We have fought for the rights of, let's say, black people in movements around the world. I think it's really at the point that we need to ask for something more progressive, which is giving nature itself rights, giving a forest a right to itself, giving a river a right to itself, and seeing that all these living beings can only be actually continue to live on this world if we recognize they have a right to their existence and to their being. So not only asking for keeping and sticking to the laws we have signed already, but really going a lot further than that. Well, instead, in many ways, we seem to go backward from that. I mean, in that episode, you know, that you were at the center of the leader at the time, the interior minister of Italy, the leader of Italy's Lega party, didn't hesitate to use you as a foil. And at the same time, there were people who were rushing to donate to your legal defense. And that conflict, I think, that you're speaking about, that you sailed in the middle of, you know, we now often hear it as described, even in the mainstream media, as a conflict between nationalist and globalist. Is that a word that you say, well, hi, I'm Carola Rackete, a globalist, and I stood down the nationalists for the good of refugees? Well, I would probably call them white supremacists, to be honest. People who believe that there is some type of difference between peoples in the world and that some should have more rights than others. I think a lot of problems which we have nowadays are completely rooted in racism. And unless we somehow manage to confront that, 
and really all work to abolish white supremacy, it will be very, very hard to secure the common future of humanity on this planet. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to ask you about, you know, when you look at, you know, the kind of sparks of hope in the reaction against white supremacy, for example, what's been happening with the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., and with so many deaths, so many visible deaths in the Mediterranean, why haven't they sparked the same kind of uprising in Europe? What's your view on that? Why don't we have the same sort of outrage and distress and mobilization towards action? Because you seem to be describing this predicament as, you know, as the results of the same underlying evil. In my opinion, the difference lies on the fact that, for example, in the US, the people being killed by the US police are often, as well, US citizens. So they're members of the US society and community. Whereas when we look at, for example, the European border police Frontex, the human rights abuses which they carried out are mainly carried against people who have no EU national passports. And therefore, I think we come into that situation where psychologically people within the EU do not identify with them as much. A complete so, othering. Yeah, it's a form of othering. And we see, for example, with the coronavirus, that people really do care for people in the in-group for their family, for their friends, for people in their street, maybe in their town, for people who they feel are very similar to them. But at the same time, the European society leaves refugees on the Greek camps, crowded, no access to hygiene, not enough health care. It would be so easy to take these people out of these camps and distribute them across Europe. We have like 450 million people, whether we take 40,000 of the Greek islands doesn't make absolutely any difference to anyone. But there, our compassion somehow seems to stop because we are saying these people on these islands are somehow not part of our in-group. It's okay if we leave them in these unsafe conditions. At the same time, we're also willing to take care of our neighbors. So that is a core problem. And I think um, that's a bit of the reason why we do not have an outcry so much about the people who lose their lives in the Mediterranean Sea, because I think many people perceive them to be part of their outgroup. They're perceived to be too, too different from us. They don't see the common humanity. And they cannot somehow uh, identify with them. They would not accept that if it was their neighbor. They wouldn't accept that if that was happening in the North Sea. Mm -hmm. So staying on the idea, on the topic of identification, you said, you know, I wouldn't call the nationalists nationalists, I would call them white supremacists. How do you call yourself? How, how do you identify um, with Carola today? I usually identify as a European, not typically as a German person, which I think is quite common, I think, for people my age who have grown up with the open Schengen borders and the possibility to travel across the EU, at least, very, very easily. I think a lot of people in, in my peer group have worked and studied in other EU countries, 
it's completely normal for them to travel and to move and to have friends all across that place. So I think um, I share this common identity mainly as European and only a second level probably as German, of course, because that's where I grew up and that's my cultural background as well. Hmm. That's interesting. I think of myself as a European with Italian origins. Maybe actually the biggest social divide today is, is between people who see mobility as an opportunity or have access to opportunity for mobility and people who see mobility as a potential threat. I think certainly that's true in the workplace. And um, do you think of yourself as a leader above and beyond having been a captain of a ship? Personally, I always hope there will be a system of distributed leadership. Mm -hmm in the future more than there is now i think yes. we have a natural tendency as humans to look for maybe charismatic leaders who mm -hmm. would show us the right way so that we just need to follow <laughs> we most definitely do have that tendency yes we have yeah. shown that to our, in history quite repeatedly it makes our life easier if somebody else mm -hmm. tells us and i mean of course historically that could be books as well that could be the bible that could be something else telling us this is the right way and that is the wrong way and if you take this way it will be all fine follow me i'm the leader i know what to do but i think what we would need is people generally to have a more active role into forming the society that they're part of of them not being just reduced to voters every four years or consumers But seeing that people actually have more agency, uh, more political power within their communities, that they feel they're actually part of the democracies that they're in. And we can see interesting results, I think, when citizen assemblies are being used. So people drawn by law from the population. That is something which has happened in essence, of course, in the city council. The city council wasn't elected by people at the time, of course, only free men were drawn by lot from the population and they would sit in the city council for a year and they would make decisions on the politics of the city for that time. And interestingly, because they didn't have to invest their time or energy into being re-elected, they really could focus on what is best for everyone in the community. And if we have uh, similar things now, for example, there was a citizen assembly in France on the climate crisis And people are being asked, what are the measures that we should take? And they really um, discuss that with each other. And the measures which they're asking for are much, much more radical than politicians within the parliamentary system would come up with. And they're far better able to understand the facts and to come up to conclusions which are practical than people would think, because you do not always actually need to be an expert on something. People do really have this capacity to learn and to engage. And if you give them uh, possibilities and agency to engage, they actually will. Mm -hmm. Yes, Carol, I mean, I cannot agree more. You evoke our better angels. And yet, as you started, as you say, is we have this tendency, and in my work, I call it leaderism which is different from leadership, this kind of tendency to think, okay, let's look for the leader who's going to address all these um, problems. And you're very articulate. You made the case for a systemic approach, you know, and, you know, the intersection between economic policy, environmental damage, social exclusion. 
and they have to be addressed at once and they don't have to be addressed by powerful individuals. They have to be addressed by collectivities. But here's the challenge that I often come up against. And I wonder if you have a view, but then there's always that instinct, right? Is there not the risk that saying everything is connected doesn't have a clear and focused message that people can resonate with? I mean, let, let me be direct. That's the strength of the fascists. That's the strength of the fascists. We are good, they are evil. And in history, that story is a lot more appealing that we're all in this together. So how do we counter that? How do we counter that? Um, because in many ways, if you think, I mean, even look at you. You're, you're a bit of a paradox because you're a celebrity leader arguing against celebrity leadership. You know, your gesture raised consciousness in a way that often many little gestures might not have. So how do you respond to people who say, you know, to the critique that says, yes, I agree, it's everything systemic, everything is connected, and yet it's so compelling, that clear and single message? How do we undo that instinct that you spoke about earlier? Yeah, that's, I think, a really difficult question, because I believe that's just part of our human brain from the evolution of the human being. And it's quite interesting to see that the answer to that is not always education. So sometimes I think people on the progressive or political left, they like to think that people on the other spectrum are just stupid. <laughs> and they didn't get it, but that's not right. People do have their their arguments for their positions as well. And I think we should be careful not to underestimate them or just call them populists or say they're simple-minded. I really think that we have to see that there are people who are very organized in bringing out these populist messages. And it's, I think, a question for people who are working in de-radicalization. How can you reach the people who are interested in this type of ideas before they get so drawn into a far, let's say, far right or far left bubble um, that you can't reach them anymore? And um, keeping any connection to these people, I think that's that's the really hard part. In practical terms, things that work, easy things are actually banning far-right voices from social media platforms, like really deplatforming people. They often use uh, bigger media platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, to draw people in and then get them to platforms which are more secretive and where they grow their 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 followers if we look at like QAnon and 4chan and H and things like that. So the prevention of radicalization I think is something where we really have to work on. Mm -hmm. And would you say there should be higher on the agenda of leaders of tech platforms then? Yeah, I mean we all I think have heard a lot of criticism against uh, Facebook and Twitter for not 
actually banning enough of those accounts. However, for example, Twitter has in the past months uh, banned a lot of accounts from the identitarian movement, for example. And I think as a civil society, we have to pressure social media platforms to control the content and to throw people out who are only spreading hate and wrong information. And in a way, the pandemic has made things worse because more anxiety, less movement and, um, and all that. Um, I've been wanting to ask, what, what are you working on now? What are you doing next? Personally, I'm still mainly interested in nature conservation, biodiversity protection in, in a wider sense. But also I'm working across movements, trying to show people the connections between the climate crisis, biodiversity decline, global injustice, and things like that. I do think there is a real need for that transformative change which the both the panel biodiversity and and climate of the UN are calling for saying that we really really have to restructure our societies we really have to reduce resource consumption and energy consumption on a global scale to make people see those connections and somehow work towards a society where people are able to see the connections and understand these more complex underlying causes and not mm-hmm. just see them as uh, siloed issues which have nothing to see with each other. And once they understand it, then change happens through collective actions. Every individual, I know you've written a book called Action, Not Hope, really, which kind of reiterates what you were saying earlier, more leadership, more community action and less leaders and sort of fairy tales. So that's how change will unfold. Is there any place then for, um, you know, say political leaders or CEOs or people in those positions? Or uh, do we risk saying to them, don't worry, we'll, we'll take it from here? I think everyone has to do something. And I think it's a really interesting question to imagine how people who are working in traditional businesses, which of course have to mm. increase their profits, how the people who are within that system who, of course, have their interest in living on this planet in the future, often have children, for example, Mm. how can they, within that system, make a difference? How could those businesses turn around through providing the services which are really needed for the society, but not producing goods which actually destroy the biosphere, which are just over-consuming what we are having, trashing the planet. Like, how how could people do that? And I think it's really difficult if we have grown up in the system mm-hmm. of perpetual growth to say that maybe my career, which I'm having, mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm part of a business which doesn't actually create any social good. And really asking yourself, with all the skills which you have, couldn't you do something different? Mm. Or how could a different enterprise look like? But I don't so, think know, there is like a divide between social activists or people mm-hmm. doing grassroots stuff or people, people in unions or in companies. I think everyone has to do something. 
Well, in we, a way, we we're kind arguing. of I think like it's it's an existential crisis for humanity if we don't mm-hmm. overcome this situation and somehow manage to live within the planetary boundaries yeah. and redistribute the the things yeah. which we have. We are trashing the planet, and this is our only home. This is the only planet we we can live on for this moment. So we all have to do something. And I think that is maybe a question of of leadership as well, not only how how can I lead within that system, but are we actually heading into the right direction? Like, what's the direction that society really needs to go into? Like, what is business for? Like, what is prosperity? What is important in life, really? Because this this is a special moment in human history. And this business of usual, let's just go back to normal, that mm-hmm. doesn't work. We're trashing the planet. So it, I think we, we radically need to shift direction. Every one of us needs to do that, no matter where they are in the system. Yes. I mean, that seems that what you're saying is like these old roles that we had in the old system, the politician, the activist, like don't make sense. It's like lead where you are. In a way, it almost reminds me of what you said at the beginning about your you know, what allowed you to act the way you acted in that moment, which is reflect, prepare, and then stay human, stay kind, stay present in whatever position you're in. So I must ask this, would Carola Rackete ever run for office? I probably wouldn't. Why not? Because I'm too much of a migrant. (laughs) I do so much project work. I live in so many different places. I mean, a political office is typically tied to a very specific place. So I don't yes. think that would suit me. But I'm, I've am i been actually quite excited to hear that a few people from Fridays for Future Germany are actually becoming candidates for the new parliament um, next year. And I think it's really, really important that social movements do have those connections and that people also engage within the current political system. But it's not what I would do. Okay, that's not what you would do, but think about what you just said. You know, I'm too mobile, and I completely agree, and I think that's a challenge many of us who are mobile face, that, you know, politics, after all, you use the example of the police of the city, but people have to live in the city in order to represent. But that does that not lead then to the fact that the people who have that kind of nomadic experience, the kind of broad-mindedness, the sort of sense of connectedness that we know from research that brings you, right? You know, once you start moving around, you realize there really is no other. And so if we all say, well, I'm too mobile to be in office. And I, I think I saw an interview a while ago of you said, well, the whole thing started because I didn't want to work in an office. So I started doing something else. And now you're ending saying, well, I didn't want to work in an office and I don't want to be in office. But then does that mean that people with that mindset, which is so needed, are underrepresented? And um, how does that voice become more powerful? Is it through social movements only? Because we know we've seen a lot of social movements. Some have gotten great results and some haven't. And when we study the differences, the social movements that have gotten great results, some of the ones you mentioned, eventually became institutions? Yeah, it's an interesting question, which I've actually uh, debated a lot with friends and colleagues of mine. The question Mm. of, if we all shy away from taking political roles, and other people don't, maybe other people who have more typical career pathways in, in business or study politics or law or maybe typical things which we 
often see when we look at the professions of people in, in parliament, then are we actually getting the representation that we need? And I really think it's important that some radical people run for parliament. For example, we see that in the US with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, and other people who have tried to replace the quite conservative democratic candidates, if, if we want. But I do think these people are there, at least in, in Germany, we can judge it a little bit. I see there is a young generation running for offices as well. And I think and they would be the bridges. And they I think there will be the bridges. And I mm -hmm. think it's it's a normal cycle, of course, of movements that they come and go. They typically just live for one or two years. And it's completely right that uh, the movements themselves cannot succeed if they don't have like a broader base and being connected to mm. NGOs, unions, and actually institutionalizing the wins which they have made. So that all kind of plays together. Mm. So the question is, Should people go into the political parties and try to push them from within? Or should movements be on the street and try to have influence on the whole political thinking of everyone mm. and try to change things from the outside? And for me, the answer is really we need to do both, both. of it. And we need to do both. And I think the question is not should we do one or the other, but how do we draw more people in? How do we get everyone to be engaged? Because we often say we have too much to do. You know, there's so many things to do. We can't do it with the resources which we have. The question is more like, how do we draw more people into wanting to change yeah. things at the transformative level that we need? Yeah. And in some way, you know, maybe the whole concept of a political party isn't actually suited to this holistic view. A party isn't really suited to this holistic view that you advocate um, we're running out of time and I want to bring you, you know, but if there's ever a distinction between the political and the psychological, want to bring you back again to the psychological. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying you can have a very strong purpose without necessarily being attached to a single place. So where are your roots then? Because, you know, historically, humanity have often tied their purpose to place. Um, village, um, tribe, family, country, company, party, whatever. There's territory is so such a big part of our psyches. And I think you're saying that's the problem. We need to have a purpose that transcends a single place. But then where do we put roots as people, as human beings, if not in a place, in a piece of land? I think we do need that connection with the land, actually, but not with the land in a sense of a political nation. But we do need to root ourselves in the web of life, in the biosphere, in the understanding that we're being nourished and living from what the earth gives to us. So we do need to be rooted within the community of living beings on this planet. But I think we really also need to embrace the fact that even that we maybe have grown up in a particular place, human beings and also animals and plants have always been mobile. They have always moved. We have all come out of Africa. It's just a question who has been here first. So mobility. So mobility is in our nature as much mobility as Mobility is the core 
of human nature. We, we have always it. moved. Otherwise, we would still be all in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and we have moved each other emotionally as much as we physically moved. Yes. Yeah, I think we have to see that um, mobility has always been part of human nature. It will be. It's a form of adaptation to a changing environment. Mm -hmm. Animal and plant species are on the move around the globe all the time. We see they're already moving higher up. They're moving further north because of the climate crisis. And humans will need to do the same. The area of the Earth, which is uninhabitable to human beings at the moment, is 2% of the surface, but is sought to expand to 19% in um, the hot areas of the planet by 2070. So the people will go somewhere. Going somewhere will be the solution for them to be able to survive. And I think we um, we should have a look at historic maps and see where mm -hmm. the borders used to be. And maybe at the places and times where there didn't even used to be any borders. Because borders are quite a new concept, actually, in human yeah. society. And if we look at the maps of, of Europe, the borders have been absolutely in any place yes. within the last 500 years, you know. States have come come and gone. They've always changed. So I think we should maybe give less importance to these lines drawn on the map. Because if you think of our practical experience, the people who are living across that border, they're pretty much the same than the neighbors on this side of this border. But it's more than that. I mean, if I, you know, my association to what you're saying is that um, there is the classic psychological argument, which is how do we reduce othering, which is how do we make a how do we attach to a larger group? But I also hear you saying it's not just having a larger attachment. We need a different attachment. What you're arguing is for a connection without possession, without wanting to ring fence and say, I'm attached to this, therefore this is mine. And if I think, uh, you know, what a connection without possession is like, of course, there's a word for that is love. And it's very hard to love if you're not free, if you're stuck, if you're captive in many ways. Yeah, I think um, we have to really root ourselves and view ourselves differently. Um, what mm. we receive from the earth is is gift. Food, water, mm. air, they're gifts. And we have responsibilities for... Mm caretaking of these gifts if somebody gives us a gift you know uh our parents typically tell us that we have to honor the gift you know we should cherish it yeah. we shouldn't throw it trash it which is interesting because actually no that's not what you do with the gift you shouldn't honor it or cherish it you should give it a gift is there to be given i mean in many ways that's what you were saying you were doing in that ship you were say i was i have this privilege and uh, it's a gift I'm going to use it. And if I have to pay a exactly. price. Receiving a gift asks for a responsibility to mm. use it. So I'm in a position where I have a lot of privilege because mm. I grew up in a safe place and had this education and this and that. But it gives me a responsibility to use my position to give someone else possibilities as well. Otherwise, you're betraying like, your gift. Yeah. And I think that's that's the idea of responsibility and of stewardship as well. Carla, thank you very much. I think we are 
out of time, but I really appreciated the opportunity to meet you, to hear you, yeah, and to kind of bounce off your thoughts and experiences and perspective. Thank you for being so open and thoughtful. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to speak to you. Likewise. It's kind of hard to say anything like after this conversation because it ended on such a tender note that it's almost like saying anything about it is like you're disturbing. <laughs> you're, you're kind of like intruding a, a private conversation. It wasn't in, in a way, it was a very private conversation and you could sense how they build trust over the course of the conversation. And in the end, when they are talking about the need for a different kind of attachment, Giampiero says, well, isn't there a word for it? It's love. <laughs> and um, interesting views on leadership, really. So there's someone here, Giampiero, who's an expert in leadership, and then Carola, who showed leadership but became a leader or heroic leader, even almost against her will, because she basically doesn't believe in heroic leadership and says, you know, there's no party that would lead us to a better world. There's no no one single leader. You know, we need new movements, new collective movements, much more so than heroes or, you know, heroic figures. Gave me a lot to think about. How about you? What were your key takeaways, Christian? There was a wonderful quote that leadership is a snapshot in a larger story. And I think that resonated with me. Why? Because I think we pretend that leadership can be learned just in the university, etc. And I think what they also told us, leadership is action and decision, basically. So it requires action. Just to know how a leadership works doesn't really help you. And um, I think, are you familiar with the story of the Titanic, by the way, Tim? Uh, only the movie. <laughs> okay, but you know, uh, it was not a happy end. It was a big ship, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. A big ship, also an iceberg. But I think um, if you look into the story, actually, why it was a disaster was basically a leadership issue, because when the accident happened, the captain didn't give any instructions and just said, okay, everyone help himself, do what he wants. So there was no guidance. And I think that shows basically in the darkest moment is actually where leadership really comes to life. And that is, I think, what her story basically told us. On the other hand, there was a further angle in the very end where they talked about giving. And that is, I think, also a crucial part of leadership because sometimes you think it's more like receiving when you're a leader. But I think good leaders, basically, it's you, you need to give. And now referencing to my Asian roots, basically, when I look into history, what the relationship of an emperor and the samurais have been is basically really if you are in charge you are responsible for your people you need to give them and the loyalty is more like the gift you get back so it's always about giving and receiving but not only about receiving so reciprocity in the end and that i think was pretty good nailed by their discussion in the end so i would say that was a further wonderful episode of the next visions and how's a foodable business podcast i'm very delighted to continue this discussion in the next episode you will find further episodes of tim and me and further beautiful minds on every podcasting platform looking forward to it thank you very much tim